morning. Uh, this time last year, uh, the class of 2022 at St. Mary's College in Tasmania was prepping for their grad ceremony. This school, a Catholic school, uh, was using assigned daily Bible readings that rotate on a three-year cycle. And the particular passage that happened to uh, land on the day of their graduation was Ephesians 5, 21 to 33. One Hobart woman took to X, uh, formerly known as Twitter. Uh, she wanted to know what people thought of this. And the responses ranged from mockery to disbelief, uh, outcries of hypocrisy, misogyny. Uh, this is why I have left religion behind. There was disgust. And also concern that such passages validate domestic violence. The tragedy is this. This is absolutely tragic. These concerns are not without merit. In 2017, the ABC released this piece, and it's titled, Submit to Your Husbands, Women Told to Endure Domestic Violence in the Name of God. It reported on domestic violence within the church. And story after story showed that the Bible has been used to justify, condone, enable, and cover up horrific family abuse. And that's within the church. Straight off the bat, I want to say that this is not okay. Any abuse is abhorrent. Abuse has no place in the kingdom of God. And if you are someone who uses the word of God to perpetuate abuse and you think that God is in your corner, he is not. You will find no justification or excuse for abuse in the Bible. If the stats are right, then the sad reality is that within our church family, some have likely experienced or are experiencing abuse. And as a church, we want to support and help you. We want to help you to get the care and safety that you need. You do not need to stay in a bad situation or suffer alone in silence. God is on your side. He will defend you and be your refuge. And we want to help with that. You know, it's with all of this in mind that I approach our passage today. I know it is incredibly pastorally sensitive, incredibly culturally triggering, and I need great wisdom. Um, but I'm convinced that God's word is good. God's word is good and beautiful, and it is for our good. The Bible is not outdated. The Bible is not irrelevant. The Bible is not misogynistic. It definitely does not 
condone abuse. I hope and pray in our time this morning together that we will begin to see God's pattern for relationships, that in a world of broken relationships, we're gonna see that God's purpose for them is something beautiful and good, something that reflects something of his love and grace. And I was hoping that I'd be able to tackle this whole portion of the passage, but as I was writing, I, I realized very quickly I can only really address uh, the marriage portion. It's not to say the other bits aren't important. Uh, ask questions if you have them, um, but we're gonna be focusing on the marriage bit. And some headings for us to work through. Firstly, submission is kingdom ethic. Secondly, husbands love. Third, wives submit. And finally, the meaning of marriage. Let me pray, ask for God's help, and we'll dive right in. Yeah, Father, our hope and need today is to hear your word. I know that this might land in many different places for many different people, but you come and you open our eyes to see the goodness of Jesus and the goodness of your word. Help us today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Submission is kingdom ethic. Now, our passage today is actually uh, put in this larger section, and there's this bigger train of thought that's happening, and it actually begins back in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. And when we get to verse 18, there's finally a command, and that command's this, don't get drunk. That's debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And then the following verses unpack for us what being filled with the Spirit means. It looks like this. It looks like addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and songs. It's singing to the Lord. It's giving thanks always. And finally, in verse 21, it says this. It's submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This means this. If if grace has taken a hold of our lives, if we have God's undeserved love and acceptance, if we have been changed by the gospel, if we are filled with God's spirit, then our lives will be marked by submission. Submission first and foremost to God and then submission to one another. And if you're like me, you hear this and it's so counterintuitive. It is so counterintuitive to our human nature. It, it grates against us. And this is, this is because ever since the beginning, ever since the beginning, the Bible tells us that humans have this natural inclination to dominate and rule over one another. Think back to uh, Adam and Eve. They didn't submit to God's authority. Now God says, don't eat the fruit. They do it anyway. The first brothers, Cain and Abel, Cain doesn't get what he wants. So what does he do? He kills his brother. And it goes on and on and on. These guys aren't just a couple of bad eggs. This is a universal human problem that we all have. We don't submit to God, we don't submit to one another. We want to rule and dominate. 
Now, my two-year-old, some of you have seen her. She's super cute, sweet as blueberries, cute as a panda. But if one of her other sisters gets in the way, she goes full bear mode. It's scary. We want to rule and dominate. But Jesus shows us a better way, a new way. Jesus completely flips what it means to be in authority and power. He shows us that submission is kingdom ethic. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 20, speaking to his disciples. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Listen to this, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You don't get much more power than Jesus. You don't get more authority than Jesus. And even he comes to serve. Submission is kingdom ethic. It's putting yourself under others, taking a position of humility, serving them for their good. To do this, you need God's grace. You need God's spirit. All of us, All of us, no matter what role, no matter what responsibility or authority we have or do not have, are called to mutual submission. But this doesn't mean that Jesus uh, gets rid of all roles and authority. Uh, Positions of authority still exist. Someone is given authority in the government. Somebody is given authority in the church, in the family, at work, at school. But within those structures of authority, in God's kingdom, the overarching ethic principle is submission to one another. So how does this play out in marriage? Well, Ephesians addresses wives first. And this would have been, it would have spoken volumes in their culture, super countercultural. But Uh, We're going to look at husbands first, because I think if we understand what's being asked of husbands, hopefully we will see how wrong it is to use this passage and misuse it uh, to justify any abuse. Here's how verse 21, uh, mutual submission plays out for the husband. Look at verse 25. It says, husbands, love your wives. We're pretty confused about love in our day and age. I think it's safe to say. And so Paul gives us some help. He goes on and says, Husbands, love like Jesus. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus gave up everything, his own life, for the good of the church. So husbands, love like that. 
Love sacrificially. Give yourself up for her. Lay down your desires in preference for her. Seek her good. Husbands, do you love your wife like this? Are you sensitive to her needs and desires? Or do you just assume that the things that you like and the things that you want and the things that you're interested in are the same thing that she's interested in? It probably isn't. Are you ready to go above and beyond to take care of her needs? It's not good enough to just be aware. Are you going to do something about it? When was the last time you gave up something you wanted in preference for what she wants? Your wife won't always be lovable, but neither will we. And Christ loved us still. Love your wife like Jesus loved you. To help us even more, uh, this passage gives us another illustration to to help us. The husband is to love his wife like he loves his own body. Verse 28 says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. This kind of love means orienting your life around nourishing and cherishing your wife. The argument is this, everybody looks after their own body. We nourish it, we provide for it, we, we eat good food, most of us do. We get exercise, we rest, uh, we keep our body clean, again, most do. In, some, in the same way, husbands are to nourish their wives. But love here isn't just providing all the basic needs and necessities. We are to cherish our wives. Uh, my dad used to say that um, every man loves the chase, the thrill of sweeping a girl off her feet. Uh, but eventually, uh, when, when the, the feelings fade, when the honeymoon is over, they get lazy and the romance dies. Some like, oh, some chuckles there, huh? <laughs> But that's when love really begins. And my Bible college principal used to say, husbands should take responsibility for romance. Husbands, how will you show your wife that you cherish her? Do you treat her like she is your greatest treasure on earth aside from Jesus? Do you recognize and celebrate the good that she brings to you and your family? All the the little seen and unseen things that she does. Don't be absent in your marriage. Don't get so buried in work and life that you neglect her or so caught up in your hobbies and pursuits. Prioritize your wife. You you cannot love her if she isn't high on your list of priorities. Now, I know there are seasons in life where this is chaotic. I am right there. Kids, my house is a mess. It's insane. But where you can, take time, make time, stop. Um, If you need a babysitter, there are plenty of students in this church who would happily, I'm volunteering, I'm dobbing them in, they'll happily take care of your kids. 
to give you some space. Just be with your wife. Talk with her, not talk at her. Listen deeply so you can know her and love her more. We all have a long way to go to love like this. I I know I do. As I studied this, I, I came to the realization my wife needs a better husband. <laughs> this is an incredibly high bar that the Bible is setting for us. But husbands, in God's grace, in his strength, in his power, let's rise to the occasion. Husbands, love your wives, love like Jesus, love her like you love your own body. That sets the stage now for wives. Wives, submit. Verse 22 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Notice it says, submit to your own husbands. This is not saying that women have to submit to all men. That is wrong. No justification for that here. And your submission to your husband is as to the Lord. That is not saying that your husband becomes like God to you. That is also wrong. It's saying that you submit first and foremost to God, and out of that submission to God, you also submit to your husband. Submission does not mean that you blindly follow his lead. It doesn't mean that you lose all autonomy for yourself, but it means that you defer to him. You recognize this position that God has given to him. It says, verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. There is so much debate about what it means that the husband is the head, and no one really agrees. But this much is clear. Verse 25 to 30 shows us that headship is expressed, as we've been talking about, it's expressed through love, not authoritative control or domination, love. And so a wife's submission is all about allowing your husband to exercise that kind of headship. It's supporting him in that role. I think ultimately headship is about responsibility. Responsibility. For example, if anything happens in Australia, the prime minister gets blamed. If anything happens in a business, the CEO takes the fall. If anything happens in the church, Pastor Sam and the eldership, they, the buck stops at them. In the same way in a family, the husband takes that responsibility. God will call the husband to account. When it's all over and and the husband stands before God, God will ask him to give an answer for his life and the well-being of his family, his life. So wives, submit to your husbands as he takes on this great responsibility. He needs your help. Let him exercise this obligation and responsibility of headship. Allow him the freedom to take responsibility over you. Not to control you, but to take that responsibility. Resist the urge to dominate and rule over him. Again, you know this. Your husband won't be perfect. He has room to grow. But respect him. Don't tear him down, especially when he's trying. 
Respect him when you're talking with your friends. I'm not saying that you can't ever say anything bad about him, but don't nitpick and mull over his shortcomings. Instead, think about ways where you can encourage him. And as you do this, you're going to empower him to follow Jesus and model the sacrificial love of Jesus to you and your family. Wives, are you submitting to your husbands, helping them in this way? Finally, Paul takes a bit of a side turn here, and you're going to miss it if you don't pay close attention. He turns and he shows us the meaning of marriage, and he begins by quoting from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. He says this in verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is the beginning of marriage. This this idea that a man and a woman, they both leave their families and they become one flesh. They become a new family unit. It's a picture of marriage from the very beginning. Then have a look at what Paul says next. In verse 32, he says, this mystery is profound. It's a profound mystery, but what is the mystery he's talking about? He's not talking about a man and wife becoming one flesh. That's not the mystery he's focusing on. He says the mystery is that all of this is actually about Christ and the church. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is and always has been about Jesus and the church. This is so profound. It's so hard to get your heads around. In God's great wisdom, right from the beginning, when he established marriage as a thing, he knew and he said, this is going to be a sign. This is going to be a sign for what I am going to do in the gospel. This is going to show and explain what it means when I am going to send my son to save my people, to lay down his life and to become united with them. This mystery is profound to becoming one flesh and this is what Jesus has done with the church. We are united with Christ. We are one with him. What? A profound mystery. This is what marriage has always been about. And it has profound implications. If marriage is ultimately about Jesus and the church, this means that marriage is a parable. Marriage is a signpost. It's not an ultimate destination. Marriage then is not the goal of your life, no matter what your aunties and uncles say. The goal of your life is to be a worshiper of Jesus and to be a part of his great and ultimate marriage between the church and Christ. Marriage is ultimately for the gospel. It is designed to preach. It is designed to proclaim. It is designed to demonstrate the gospel to demonstrate and show what God has done for us in Jesus. And in that display, there is no room for a power struggle, control or domination. It is all about submission to one another as the husband lays his life down to love his wife and as the wife submits to her husband. 
What can we learn from all of this? Well, there's obviously so much here for wives and husbands to consider, but let me talk to those who are single. If you are single, whether you are happily single or waiting and longing for marriage, this meaning of marriage means that you can live in a way that shows that Jesus is sufficient, that you are not missing out, that you are not living an unfulfilled life. Because if marriage is a sign, if marriage is a signpost, you are not missing out, you're not missing the main thing. You might miss on the signpost right now, but you're not going to miss the main thing. And I know that, I know that they're, they're, in reality there is a gap between these truths um, and your present experience and perhaps your longing, but this is the reality. This is what is truly happening. Jesus has come for you, and you are in Christ, and in Christ you are loved, you are cherished more than you know, and you are one with Him. And that is worth more than the love of, of, of infinite husbands and wives. Jesus has come for you. If marriage is a signpost, then at the end of the day, you are not missing out because you have Christ. So then, you can use your singleness, this time of your life, to pour out your life for Jesus in a way that married couples cannot. But also in your singleness, support those who are married. Remind them that marriage means this, a sign for what Jesus has done. They need help, married couples need help. Spur them on, help them to proclaim the gospel in their marriage. For those who are married, Know your role. Know your role. No abuse can happen when we concern ourselves with what our spouse should or should not be doing more than you concern yourself with what you should be doing. Stick to your lane. Focus on your part of this passage and as you do, proclaim the gospel with your marriage. Our passage today is greatly misunderstood. But when it's truly lived out, it is a beautiful display of God's heart. Let me finish with this reminder. On the night that Jesus went to the cross, on the night before he went to the cross, he knew. He knew what was about to happen. He knew that this was his very last night on earth. And John 13 tells us that one of the last things he did was get on his hands and knees and wash his disciples' feet. He stoops down. He becomes a servant. He washes our feet. And more than that, he dies to save us. That is our Lord and King. That is headship. Jesus is the true husband. He is the true father. He is the true master. And with all of his power and authority, 
he serves. That is grace. And grace really does change everything. If we get that, if we understand what he has done, then we don't have to push to dominate and rule over each other. Instead, we can submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let me pray. Jesus, we are in awe at what you have done. We cannot comprehend or fathom that your glory would be revealed in this way, that your power, your authority would not be shown in domination, but would be shown in service and submission. Our world is full of broken and damaged relationships, God. I pray that from this room, you would help us to live counterculturally, that our marriage would be like sweet oases in this world showing that there is a God who loves and uses his power to serve. Help us, God, we pray. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.